The next hour will inform you on how cybersecurity is one of the most significant threats to our national security, as well as the battle that cybersecurity experts are undergoing every day on your behalf to protect you, your families, and your data. Welcome to Task Force 7 Radio with your host, the president and CEO of Task Force 7 Radio and Task Force 7 Technologies, George Reedus. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm your host, George Reedus. I want to emphasize that all opinions expressed on this show are my own and not that of my present or past employers, and I will never knowingly disclose any classified information related to any security clearances I presently hold or have held in the past with the United States government. Well, we've had an amazing response to our pilot episode last week with our special guest, former Secretary of Homeland Security, Michael Chertoff. If you haven't had the chance to listen to the episode yet, please make sure you take the time to tune in. And just a reminder, all episodes are available for your playback 24-7, 365 on the Voice America Business Channel. And you can also listen to any episode you want at taskforce7radio.com, where I will soon be listing a plethora of other places you can listen to any episode of the show. And there are quite a few. I would be remiss if I didn't start off this show by saying thank you for the overwhelming support I have received this week after the pilot episode aired. The response has just been amazing, and I'm sincerely humbled by the kind words of support and love I received from so many people. Thank you so much. It really means the world to me. Thank you. We have yet another amazing show planned for today. We're going to have yet another very high-profile guest, best-selling author of the book's Pinnacle Event, Against All Enemies and Cyber War, as well as the former member of the National Security Council and Special Advisor to the Bush Administration on Cybersecurity and current CEO of his own company, Good Harbor Security and Risk Management, Richard Clark. So I'm super stoked to have him on the show. Dick always provides unique and interesting insights into both current and past cybersecurity events. I first met Dick when he was teaching at the Kennedy School at Harvard University, and he asked me to be a guest lecturer in the first cybersecurity classes taught at Harvard. That also included students from MIT. So it was an honor to do that, and one thing I learned about Dick is that he is one of the most interesting speakers you'll ever listen to, and he knows how to spark a discussion. So we're very lucky to have him. So as we get started with these first few episodes of our pilot series, we're defining what the show's about. So to my knowledge, no one else is doing this. You can't go anywhere else on the radio and listen to serious cybersecurity experts interviewed by cybersecurity professionals for the better part of an hour. It just doesn't happen. So the guests that we're having on the show appear on major news channels all the time. You'll see them on Fox News, CNN, MSNBC. But they are interviewed by journalists who don't have any cybersecurity experience, and the interviews last only a few minutes. That's not what we're doing here today. We have the deepest relationships, and we're going to bring you the best information to your smartphone or computer on demand whenever you want to hear it. So I'm pretty excited to have Richard Clark on the show with us today. First, I just want to cover some more current news uh, that happened this week. So the hits just keep on coming for Equifax. I mean, where do I even start with this? Uh, public outrage has been expressed across just about every major media outlet in the world over the breach of Equifax's critical systems that led to the compromise of the personal information of over 143 million people. Estimated to be a whopping six out of every 10 adults in the United States. The breach includes their full names, social security numbers, birth dates, addresses, and, in some cases, their driver's license numbers. 
Equifax has also confirmed that at least 209,000 consumers' credit card credentials were taken in the attack, and certain dispute documents with personal identifying information for approximately 182,000 U.S. consumers were also accessed. So apparently our friends in the United Kingdom and Canada didn't escape the calamity, and were also impacted by the breach. The company claims to have discovered evidence of the cyber attack on July 29th of this year. So before I dive in, to really understand the outrage we're seeing, you have to understand a little bit about Equifax and their business model. Equifax is a consumer credit reporting agency that has aggregated and recorded the personal data of over 800 million individual consumers and more than 88 million businesses worldwide. That's an enormous business with a very high profile. Aside from offering credit and demographic-related data and services to businesses, Equifax sells credit monitoring and, get this, fraud prevention services directly to consumers. So the company's been around forever. I mean, it's based out of Atlanta. Uh, they were founded in, get this, 1899. Right, it's the oldest of the three largest credit agencies, along with Experian and TransUnion, also known as the big three in the credit reporting world. But here's the rub. Equifax makes a reported whopping $3.1 billion in annual revenue off the public trust of their most personal data. So in future episodes, we'll get to issues about the stock price, including the time it took for Equifax to discover the breach, and also the time it took them to notify customers after they discovered the breach. We'll also get to the departure of CEO Richard Smith last week, the congressional testimony that's on the horizon, the possibility of stricter regulatory oversight because of it, and then the sale of large amounts of stock by senior executives following this discovery of the breach. We'll also get to the numerous criminal investigations that are on the horizon, and also if the underlying business model has a chance to survive this event because of it. So we're going to be covering all this. It's going to be quite a conversation. Let's just quickly do a recap of what we know and what Equifax has told us. On July 29, 2017, Equifax discovered suspicious network traffic and they blocked it. On July 30th, their security team observed additional suspicious activity and they took the affected web application offline that day. They determined that a vulnerability in the Apache Stretch web application gave the bad guys access to their systems. And so they smartly patched it and brought the application back online. On August 2nd, 2017, Equifax hired my friends over at Mandiant to investigate the incident. Over the next several weeks, Mandiant conducted their forensic investigation, a process that I'm quite familiar with. The Wall Street Journal obtained a copy of the Mandiant report, which allegedly indicates that the hackers may have accessed Equifax systems on March 10th two days after the announcement of the Apache Struts vulnerability and months before Equifax had previously disclosed the day the breach occurred. Equifax announced the breach to the public on September 7, 2017, 40 days later or roughly six weeks after they initially claimed they discovered the breach. So since the announcement of the breach on September 7th, it's been nothing but a nightmare for Equifax, and it seems like the story just keeps getting worse and worse and worse. And this, this speaks to the actual response uh, to the incident itself. So let's start with this. Apparently, twice on September 9th and once on September 18th, Equifax, in response to customer inquiries on how to determine if their information was stolen from the breach, tweeted that customers should go to www.securityequifax2017.com 
to sign up for free credit monitoring. The only problem with this, of course, was that this was not an Equifax website. That's right. You heard me. It was not an Equifax website, but was in fact a website set up by a software engineer named Nick Sweeting to, according to NPR.org, educate people rather than steal their information. Thank God for Equifax. Apparently, again, according to NPR.org, when going to the fake site, a banner at the top of the site read, cybersecurity incident and important consumer information, which is totally fake. Why did Equifax use a domain that's so easily impersonated by phishing sites? Now, I couldn't find anything that determined how many times Equifax tweeted for consumers to go to the fake site, but the online magazine Wired reported that it was tweeted four times, and Sweeting himself posted a screenshot of the three separate tweets I previously mentioned from Equifax directing consumers to the fake site. So we know it was tweeted at least three times by Equifax. Let's talk about this for a second. This is really embarrassing. I mean really, really embarrassing. Let's put aside Sweeting's concern about why companies create domains that are easily impersonated. We could debate that all day. I mean, I, what, what domain isn't easily impersonated? Companies, for the most part, cannot prevent bad guys from creating websites with similar names to real legitimate sites to try to trick consumers to visiting the site. Of course, common sense tells us that they could have used a trusted Equifax.com domain and what's more, I understand that there is something to be said about sound domain management programs that serve to protect the integrity of your brand's reputation. But that's not nearly the worst of it. Forget all that. Instead, let's talk about the fact that Equifax was directing their customers who were potential victims of a recent cyber attack to go to a fake website. I mean, how does that happen? Who wrote that script for the social media department? One can assume that no one did and there was no due diligence around the tweet and that someone behind the keyboard came up with it themselves. Because I don't know about you, but anyone out there listening right now who has any experience working for a corporate company knows that you can't release any public statement or talk about anything for that matter as a representative of your company without first running it by 15 people, including five lawyers who scrutinize everything you say. So wh where were the scrutinizers? Where were they? It seems they must have all been on vacation that day. So this comes at the absolute worst time for Equifax. Equifax is trying to convince the public that they are not the bad news bearers of cybersecurity, and they do this by tweeting out to victims of the attack to visit a fake website where they could have been easily victimized all over again. Imagine your surprise if you were one of the 10 people in the country who actually didn't have their information compromised by the breach, and you went to the fake website Equifax instructed you to go to, and you had your information compromised because of it. So you survived the alleged incompetence of the company you trusted with your information to begin with, only for them to make sure you didn't slip through the cracks of victimization by it actually directing you to a website where it is all but guaranteed that you will definitely be made a victim of identity and financial fraud. I mean, this guy Sweeting says the fake site has had roughly 200,000 page loads. I mean, you can't make this stuff up.
How ridiculous do you look when your social media team is tweeting out phishing sites for your customers to go to in response to a cyber attack against your company? In the end, lucky for Equifax, Mr. Sweeting did not have criminal intentions. And just when you thought it would end there, here's how Equifax addresses this mishap. According to NPR, an Equifax spokesperson told NPR that, quote, unquote, all posts using the wrong link have been taken down. We apologize for the confusion. Consumers should be aware of fake websites purporting to be operated by Equifax. Our dedicated website for consumers to learn more about the incident and sign up for free credit monitoring is www.equifaxsecurity2017.com. And our company homepage is www.equifax.com. Please be cautious of visiting other websites claiming to be operated by Equifax that do not originate from these two pages. Yeah, no kidding! What about the fact that you, a company that makes millions of dollars selling our information and is trusted with our most personal data, directed us to a fake website that could have been operated by some joker ready to steal more of our data all over again for a whole new set of cyber criminals to party with? I mean, this response is, is entirely inadequate. Where's the apology? Where's the falling on the sword? Where's the acceptance of accountability? The begging for forgiveness? The promise of future trust and competence? I mean, what is this? You're telling me not to do what you just did. Is this supposed to be some kind of like voodoo mind trick on us that we don't see what's going on here? So just to close the loop on this particular debacle in this event, let's circle back. I agree. Equifax should have used the trusted Equifax.com domain with an EV certificate. And of course, companies should use trusted domains to do business, especially when they are trying to regain the trust of consumers who are completely dismayed with the organization and its leadership following a massive security failure. But man, for the love of God, don't help the bad guys by directing your own customers to their phishing sites. We'll be back with Richard Clark and a lot more about the Equifax breach after the commercial break. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Do you need directions to solid financial future? If so, the Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with a roadmap to making smart money decisions in every area of your personal finances. Join Jordan every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, 3 p.m. Eastern, for the Money Answer Show on the Voice America Business Channel. Learn how and where to get the best deals on mortgages, cars, and insurance. Find out the best ways to save for college and retirement. Get out of debt, improve your credit rating, and save on your taxes. The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with great tips on investment opportunities in real estate, stocks, annuities, and other investment vehicles. That's the Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman on the Voice America Business Channel every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Higher education faces lots of changes. If you are a student, educator, or in the workforce, you'll want to tune into Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education. Your host, Dave Goldberg, and his guests will explore the innovations that higher education adopts as it reinvents itself. The world of higher education is constantly changing. Stay on top and stay ahead of the rest. Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education. 
Listen Mondays at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Ritas. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's taskforce7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Ritas. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm here with our special guest, the president of Good Harbor Security Risk Management and best-selling author of the book Cyber War, Richard Clark. Mr. Clark, welcome to the show. Oh, it's great to be with you. Great. So let's jump right into it. I've been talking a lot uh, on the first segment of the show about the Equifax breach, and I, I think I can talk about it uh, for weeks because there's so much to talk about and, and, and go over. But what are your thoughts on the Equifax breach? How could a breach of this magnitude happen again? Well, it happens all the time. And, uh, you know, we had Yahoo earlier. <clears throat> we had OPM. Uh, the numbers are enormous in all of those cases. And they're all examples of just poor management. Uh, when, you're, when your company is all about data and all about personal data, you have to have a higher level of emphasis on security than if you're, you know, a farm <laughs> or something. And, and for, for, for these companies not to have the, the simple uh, security technologies that would have stopped this, uh, it's just unforgivable. You know, it comes down to two things, I think. One, uh, a lot of companies just refuse to recognize uh, that the risk is out there until it happens to them. But two, and and most importantly, all companies uh, think they can get by on the cheap with cybersecurity. They think they can get by spending 3%, 5% uh, of their IT budget on security. And you can't. You know, when we all moved everything into the Internet and now into the cloud, beginning in the, in the early 1990s, we had a huge increase in productivity. The, the move to cyber-based systems or Internet-based systems saved companies a huge amount of money. They never really priced in the true cost of running those IT systems because they never priced in the true cost of security. If you spend appropriately, and that means having trained people as well as hardware and software, this won't happen to you. There are companies uh, and there are government agencies where it doesn't happen. There aren't very many, but there are some. And when you see what do they have in common, it's they've got really good people in adequate numbers, and they spend adequately, uh, and they constantly bring in new technologies to meet with the new threats. So in, in this case, 
it seems like the inability for companies to deploy these affecting patching operations is, is more and more to blame for these types of attacks. Is this part of the training, like you mentioned, or is this part of not spending enough money, or we don't have the right technology? Why is it so hard for, for everyone to patch their systems once they've been notified about the vulnerability? Well, in this case, it may have been. Uh, just looking at the open source information that we have, it may have been only two days after the patch was issued that the right. uh, penetration occurred. Now, it's very difficult for any big company to patch in two days. You've got to take the patch and you've got to test it in your test environment uh, before you put it in your production environment. But right. there are things that you can do in the meantime uh, that are quick fix uh, blocking actions. Uh, and among them uh, are to set up surveillance for this kind of thing happening. You know, it's one thing to say, they should have put the patch on early. Uh, but even if they had put the patch on in the first 30 days, still the attack would have occurred. But they should have had a surveillance system that would have detected 143 million uh, personal identifiable information packages going out the door. Where was their data loss prevention software? Uh, where was their threat hunting team? Uh, you know, this sort of thing doesn't happen in companies that have those kinds of technologies deployed. Right. So, I mean, so the expectation should be maybe, you know, the bad guys are banging up against their systems within 48 hours of the disclosure of the vulnerability, but they didn't have a defense in depth posture that would adequately detect this type of activity. So it's just not right. a one-stop shop. Security. Well, I mean, look, there's a, there's a company called Logarithm up in Colorado that has as, as its slogan, uh, they will get in. And, you know, and I think that's absolutely right. A hacker is going to get into a big network. It's very hard to keep them out. And perimeter defense just doesn't work the way it used to, if it ever did. So you, you have to have your system architected in a way that once they get in, they can't do much damage. Uh, why wasn't all of this data encrypted? It's, it's unforgivable that it wasn't encrypted. It's unforgivable that they never noticed the, uh, the data going out the door. Uh, that's not a matter of, of patching quickly. It's hard to patch quickly. We get that. But that's a matter of architecting your system uh, in a way that accepts the reality that they're going to get in. So knowing what we know today, and it's not much uh, when you think about, when you start thinking about attribution, and of course everything that we talk about in this sense is just completely an assumption or a guess in some a lot of respects, but in your estimation, does this look like the work of a nation state or a cyber organized crime group? I mean, who do you think well, most likely? It could, it, it could be either. Uh, you know, the fact of the matter is that the two blur uh, in reality. Is North Korea um, a, uh, a nation state or an organized crime group. Hard to tell. Um, is Russia, uh, you know, what, is the GRU or the FSB an organized crime group? No, but they sure heck, as heck use them a lot. Right, right. And at the end of the day, it doesn't matter, you know. It really doesn't matter who did it to you uh, if it got done. So now that we know this, uh, all this data is out there on millions and millions of Americans, what happens with it? What, what do the per perpetrators use this data to do, and how do they victimize consumers even further? And then 
the illegal proceeds that they get from their activities, are they mostly used for anti-American interests and, or activities or events in your mind? I mean, how does, how does that play out with your experience? Well, so generally the data is not used by the person who acquires it. Uh, the group that acquires it usually sells it off in blocks, uh, and people use it for a variety of different means. Um, they can use the, uh, the personal identifiable information sometimes uh, with a help desk uh, to get a password uh, to get into your network, either your personal network or your corporate network. Uh, sometimes they use to file tax returns and get um, uh, tax uh, rebates. Uh, or a second mortgage on a house, um, typically they're used to get a credit card uh, and to spend a few hundred dollars, a few thousand dollars. Um, but every personal identifiable information like this is, is worth money, uh, although less and less uh, because there's so many of them out there. Uh, I think it raises two kind of policy questions. One, should we continue to allow name, date of birth, and social security number to be used uh, as a way of identifying people. Uh, everybody's name and date of birth and social security number has been compromised. Uh, if, you, right. if you combine all these hacks, there's nobody whose uh, information hasn't been compromised. So why are we allowing uh, government agencies and companies to continue to use identifiers um, to authenticate that we know are compromised. It's ridiculous. It's like continuing to use a, uh, a crypto key that you, you know has been, uh, has been compromised. No one would do that. The second policy question is, uh, shouldn't we punish uh, private sector companies uh, and government agencies, for that matter, in some way, um, based on what they lose? Uh, my colleague Rob Kanaki has proposed that we take the example of oil spills, where oil companies are penalized based on the volume of the oil spill, uh, how many gallons uh, were spilled. And he says, why don't we penalize companies based on the number uh, of personally identifiable uh, information accounts that were compromised? And if you if you did that, it $10,000 an account, uh, you'd bankrupt some companies. And maybe a couple of companies need to be bankrupt uh, in order for people to take this seriously. So you think this is going to call for like a bigger push for FA and, and biometric authentication technology to be implemented in, 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 in places like like banks and, the, uh, and other places that require financial transactions? Well, I I think so. I hope so. You know, look, if it, if it requires a new regulation that has to go through the Congress, it's not going to happen uh, because Congress, the majority party in the Congress, has concluded that any regulation is bad, and the regulation is actually a four-letter word. Uh, so that's not going to happen. But there are existing regulatory regimes, particularly in the in the banking and um, finance sector where existing regulators have the authority to step up their game. And I think they need to. Uh, they need to say, <clears throat> you can't use name, date of birth, social security information anymore. They need to say, all information must be encrypted. They need to say, if you lose that information, you will be heavily penalized. 
And I think we do need uh, a national standard on breach notification. Uh, we don't have one. We have a hodgepodge of state laws. Uh, but even the state laws make it unclear uh, about really what you have to notify and when. Uh, I think we need to get clarity on that uh, for particular kinds of breaches, breaches that uh, hurt the general public or threaten the infrastructure. So in your experience, I just want to circle back to what the criminals or even nation states at times do with the proceeds from the criminal activities that occur by compromising this data. I mean, in your experience, is are, are, are these illegal proceeds used for to fund anti-American interests? Frequently they are. Certainly the North Korean government uh, uses a variety of things, not just cybercrime, uh, although they do use cybercrime. They also use uh, uh, drug running, uh, and even counterfeiting uh, $100 bills. Uh, and they use all of that to build nuclear weapons and missiles, uh, among other things. But some large uh, criminal cartels use the money uh, in a way that you or I, uh, if we had that much money, would use it. They invest it. Um, frequently, they invest it back in the United States uh, or places like Panama, where there are uh, real estate booms, where real estate uh, has value and, and grows in value, whether that's in London or Panama or the United States. Uh, if you look at who buys uh, real estate, uh, hot real estate in the United States, particularly condominiums, uh, it's frequently um, no-name uh, corporations, you know, LLCs, that are owned by LLCs in some offshore island, and when you when you see that kind of pattern of shell company within shell company within shell company um, buying real estate, uh, that's usually foreign organized crime, and foreign organized crime increasingly gets its proceeds uh, from cyber attacks. So we've talked a little bit about funding in the beginning, and and I'm thinking about in terms of when we talk about cyber capabilities. Offense and defense are, are two different animals, right? So it takes a lot more money on the defensive side than on the offensive side. Are we spending enough money on the defensive side? I know you said that you know spending three to five percent of your IT budget just doesn't cut it. I mean, what what should we be spending, and and, and where are we falling short? Well, it, look, I know that the percent of your IT budget as an indicator is a gross indicator. Uh, and it does depend on the nature of the company. Again, and go back to the farm as an example. The farm probably doesn't need to spend a lot of money on cybersecurity. But the company that has uh, a huge amount of data, one either personally identifiable information or any other kind of data, um, they do. They do need to spend the money. So I, I think you need to do a, a corporate risk analysis based on your own corporation. Uh, or your own government agency, uh, and say, are, are, am I really a cyber company? Uh, you know, 20 years ago, I had the CEO of a major railroad company say to me, uh, I'm not a railroad, I'm a cyber company that has trains. And I'll never forget that, because ever since then, I've looked at companies and said, are you really an airline? Are you really a, a bank? 
uh, or are you a cyber company that does X? Uh, more and more, all companies, uh, big companies, are cyber companies. Uh, and if you are, then you need to spend appropriately. Um, whether you're manufacturing uh, or generating electricity or moving gas, uh, your controls are all run by cyber. So it's not just a matter of data. It's also a matter of industrial procedures, industrial controls. Uh, if your company can't exist without the Internet, if your company can't exist without its internal software, then you're a cyber company. Look at the big law firm, DLA Piper, uh, that was nearly wiped out um, <clears throat> by a cyber attack that zeroed out all the data on their network. Uh, they suddenly realized they're not a law firm. They're a cyber company that engages in law. Uh, and I think that's the way we need to look at it. If you, if you look at it that way, and then you say, uh, my company won't exist if, I, if my network doesn't run, how much am I willing to invest to make sure that my network is always running securely? Yeah, and I'm hearing a lot, a lot of companies start posturing themselves just like that. So we're bumping up against a break. Um, we're going to take some time for that. We'll be right back with more from our special guest, CEO of Good Harbor Security and Risk Management, Richard Clark. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Do you need directions to solid financial future? If so, the Money Answers Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with a roadmap to making smart money decisions in every area of your personal finances. Join Jordan every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, 3 p.m. Eastern for the Money Answers Show on the Voice America Business Channel. Learn how and where to get the best deals on mortgages, cars, and insurance. Find out the best ways to save for college and retirement. Get out of debt, improve your credit rating, and save on your taxes. The Money Answers Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with great tips on investment opportunities in real estate, stocks, annuities, and other investment vehicles. That's the Money Answers Show with Jordan Goodman on the Voice America Business Channel every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Higher education faces lots of changes. If you are a student, educator, or in the workforce, you'll want to tune into Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education. Your host, Dave Goldberg, and his guests will explore the innovations that higher education adopts as it reinvents itself. The world of higher education is constantly changing. Stay on top and stay ahead of the rest. Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education. Listen Mondays at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You are listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Ritas. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's taskforce7 with the number 7, radio.com. 
Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Ritas. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. We're going to continue our conversation with the president of Good Harbor Security and Risk Management, Richard Clark. So before I jump into some of the nation-state stuff I want to ask you, there's just a couple things I want to follow up on on, on the Equifax breach, and, and, and it's pertinent to how corporations uh, handle themselves and communicate with the board and communicate with their CEOs. Do CEOs in this country understand the extent of the cyber threat to their organizations? Very few of them do. Um, what I keep being asked by CEOs is a very basic question. How am I doing? Um, you know, because they talk to their CISO rarely. And when they do, the CISO very frequently talks in language that they don't understand. You know, the CEO talks in terms of risk management uh, and P&L and shareholder value. And the CISO is talking to them about uh, things that they really don't understand. Sometimes they're afraid to admit it. Uh, what, uh, what a board wants to know, what a CEO wants to know, is what's my biggest risk? What's the worst thing that could happen to me? And how do I mitigate that? <clears throat> and frankly, a lot of them would simply want to know, uh, how do I prevent a big lawsuit or a big regulatory action against me after the fact? But the smarter ones realize that there's a lot of reputational damage that comes from these attacks. And if your business is not that sticky, if you've got a competitor that people can jump over to very quickly, uh, then you don't want that reputational damage. Uh, and so they want to know, what more can I do? Uh, it seems like an em empty, uh, endless money pit to some of these CEOs because they can't relate the money they're being asked to spend to particular outcomes. And if the CISO can say, hey, <clears throat> here's this outcome. Here's a specific awful case that could happen to you. How much are you willing to spend to stop that? That works very often with the CEO. So these attacks have been going on for more than a decade, and and it seems like it's just getting worse and worse. And it's, in your estimation, last five years, we made any positive progress whatsoever in defending our critical systems? Are things getting better, or are they getting worse? Well, you know, they get better, but then people want to do new things with technology. Uh, if you go back 15 or 20 years, they were getting better, and then we invented mobile uh, and other ways in which the perimeter um, disappeared. We were doing fine up to a point, you know, in the in the 90s with firewalls and intrusion detection and intrusion prevention and antivirus, and we were building like this nice little fortress model. Uh, but then people moved on with the technology. Uh, now we've moved into the cloud. Uh, we have mobile. We have cloud. Uh, we have containerization. Uh, we have the ever expanding Internet of Things. So just when we think we're going to get good uh, at cybersecurity, we find a whole new attack surface because companies, frankly, want to move to that new technology before security has been designed for it. 
containers are a great example. People are rushing into containers before they've got a secure system for it. People want to move to um, DevOps for creating software uh, in a really uh, fast way uh, before they've got a way of securing it. Uh, the Internet of Things is growing from 5 billion devices to 30 billion devices over the course of the next three years, again, without people designing security in. We never design security in from the beginning. It's always added on after the fact. And so we never get well uh, because the technology is always out ahead of the security. I have to ask you, I mean, does does the Internet of Things actually, in reality, make the threat of a DDoS attack worse? Oh, yeah, much worse. Much okay. worse. And we, we saw that, you know, the first case of this uh, earlier uh, this year when we had, I think it was 150 million, uh, some huge number uh, of uh, surveillance cameras uh, that were turned into DDoS uh, bots uh, and then attacked the DNS system. Um, that's the tip of the iceberg. Because many of these uh, Internet of Things devices just don't have uh, the room uh, in memory uh, to put in security. Uh, the chipsets are small, the memory sets are small, uh, and there's just no way to build security into them and given their current design. So I just want to roll back one second to the Equifax breach. And if we, you know, if I throw out a hypothetical to you right now and say that say the Mandiant investigation determines that a nation state is behind the cyber attack, right? What should the response be of the United States government? I mean, what do we do about that? Well, as a matter of policy, the U.S. government has said, we treat a cyber attack on our infrastructure uh, as we would any other attack. It's not whether it comes from cyber or a bomb. It's the effect. Uh, do you consider Equifax part of the infrastructure? Well, yeah, kind of. Kind of part of the, the financial uh, infrastructure. I think if you found a nation state uh, that had done that, you might want to retaliate. Um, but I'm not sure you'd want to retaliate for the cyber attack. You know, the United States is more vulnerable than most countries to cyber attacks because we depend on cyber more than most countries. So do you really want to get involved in an ever-escalating tit-for-tat war in cyberspace? I'm not sure we win that way. Uh, if you find a nation-state has done this kind of attack, maybe you want to do financial sanctions. Maybe you want to lay out your evidence to other nations and get them to join you with financial sanctions. That may have a greater impact than retaliating uh, in, a, in a way similar to the way we were attacked. A cyber response to a cyber attack may not always make sense. Right. So I kind of want to transition into the broader subject of nation-state attacks and as they've happened in the past and what the United States policy is because you have so much experience in this, in this space. And I, when I look at the Sony breach, and I, you know, the Sony breach there wasn't a critical infrastructure attack um, like we just spoke about. So did the government have the right response to that breach? I mean, just because it wasn't critical infrastructure, I mean, another country crippled one of the largest entertainment companies we have because they didn't like a movie they were releasing. I mean, it, they just let the private sector handle it. Is, is that the right response? 
Well, the, the government did engage in some some response. It wasn't much. Uh, I think it was probably the appropriate response under the circumstances, because the circumstances are we already have every imaginable sanction we can put on North Korea. Right. Uh, and... When you've run out your your deck on uh, on sanctions, um, you're in a difficult position because you can't do any more, uh, and if you haven't deterred their action with all of your sanctions, um, then you have to think of other means of responding. With China, um, when China was engaged in massive industrial espionage, uh, eventually the Obama administration got around to addressing it with the Chinese and did so repeatedly and at a high level uh, to the point where the Chinese really understood that we were serious uh, and that we were going to do something uh, about it. And they responded. Uh, and it worked. And there, there is much less Chinese industrial espionage in the U.S. now as a result of the agreement between Obama and his Chinese counterpart. Some of that industrial espionage has shifted. Um, Germany is now reporting, for example, a huge uptick in Chinese industrial espionage against them. Um, but we, we threatened trade sanctions against China, uh, and that worked. So, in your mind, what crosses the line in a cyber attack? And I asked, Secretary Turf of this on a previous show, and I've heard you speak about it as well in terms of what the policy is of the United States, and we, ter we, we tend to think in terms of if there wasn't a loss of life, then the response or the even thought of a response gets you know sort of diminished very quickly. I mean, is that should we still have that mentality? I mean, just because a life wasn't lost in this breach in the Equifax breach, per se, because of the breach. I mean, is, it should how should we temper our response in that in that sense? I mean, what's the line? What crosses the line? I call this the body bag problem. I mean, a lot of people are just not motivated uh, unless there's a body bag involved. It's a terrible thing to say, um, but we, we often measure the significance uh, of activities by the number of deaths. And while I, any death is significant, so are other things. And... If you uh, attack our critical infrastructure, uh, if you steal our intellectual property, uh, if you steal our money, if you uh, take our defense secrets, uh, those are all things that have significant downstream uh, negative impact and probably death. It's just difficult to put a, a number of uh, dead people uh, against a specific attack. Uh, because it doesn't frequently materialize until later, if at all. Um, I think for cyber attack, we have to realize that cyber attack can be very harmful to our country, to our people, to our economy, without resulting in any immediate death. Um, if we're going after a cyber criminal cartel uh, that is engaged in hurting us, you know, I think we have to have a, an organized campaign that goes after that cartel uh, with arrests, but also with covert action. Um, there's a lot you can do with covert action that, frankly, I don't believe we are doing. Um, and in addition, 
cyber attacks. I do think cyber attacks against criminal cartels make sense. Uh, I don't think there's anywhere in the U.S. government an organized interagency effort, not just the FBI, not just the CIA, but an interagency effort that says, here is this criminal cartel. Uh, it, it, we know who's in it. We know what they're doing. They're engaged in these kinds of cyber attacks. Let's take that down. Let's use all the leverage we have, uh, financial, diplomatic, uh, covert, cyber, uh, and otherwise, and let's take that organization down. That doesn't happen. Do you think the lack of a, a response from the United States in this instance, if we do find out, in fact, that a nation state was involved in this attack, that a lack of response actually encourages other nation states to launch attacks that may result in the loss of life? Well, I think it encourages them to launch additional attacks, whether or not it results in the loss of life. Um, you know, I think the FBI is doing a good job. It's doing a better job than it had been. You know, in the past, they would maybe get one significant overseas hacker a year. And this year, I think they've arrested seven or eight where they've lured them to other locations uh, outside of their sanctuary home country uh, and arrested them and then got an extradition of one sort or another. Uh, that's good. It's not enough. Uh, and the FBI alone can't do this. We, uh, we need to use all of the tools in the government toolkit. So every time I turn on the TV, you obviously see reports about all the tensions that are going on in the Korean Peninsula right now. And, and um, should we automatically assume that any kinetic war that takes place will also include a cyber war that will ensue at the same time with that country? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and particularly because the, the North Koreans launched their cyber attacks from outside of North Korea. Uh, most of their cyber attacks are launched from uh, China, sometimes even from South Korea. Uh, that doesn't mean the Chinese government or the South Korean government knows about that in advance and, and permits it. Um, sometimes uh, the Chinese seem to know uh, and, and turn a blind eye. Uh, but frequently they don't. And so, uh, yeah, you could end up in a kinetic war with North Korea, and during that war, uh, even if the North Korean network went down, um, there could still be North Korean-led cyber attacks against us, against our military, uh, but also against our infrastructure. I think you would have to expect that to happen. So, in your estimation, does the United States have the best offensive capability in the world still when it comes to cyber warfare? compared to other nations. I mean, uh, I, I, there's dozens of countries out there right now that are building cyber warfare uh, departments in their military. I mean, how do we, how do we uh, match up against that? Well, there used to be no competition. Um, the United States for well over a decade had the only real offensive cyber capability. And then the Russians got good, uh, and eventually the Chinese, and, and now it's very widespread. Um, still there is a difference in quality between what we can do and what most other countries can do. But the gap has been, has been closed. Uh, and the old notion that we used to have 
that there's us and then there's everybody else. Uh, I think that's no longer true. Uh, I'm not sure that we have the um, the big gap that we used to uh, enjoy. I'm not sure we have so many really super tricks up our sleeves that other people haven't figured out. So one last question before we uh, go up against the, the end of the show. How do we establish global norms to deal with the proliferation of cyber attacks? I mean, how do we do that? It's a very sophisticated process. I mean, it seems to be so. Yeah. I've been calling for a uh, an alliance of like-minded nations uh, that don't engage in offensive uh, attacks and, and don't, let criminal groups operate from their territory. Uh, and that would be Japan, United Kingdom, Germany, uh, us, France, uh, some small number of big industrial countries that share these norms on cyber. Start with them. Uh, frankly, don't let the Russians or Chinese in because their performance to date hasn't uh, suggested that they should be part of that group. Have that group to get together, create some norms uh, about behavior, uh, and then say, here are these norms. You either live up to these norms, other countries, or we will engage in sanctions against you. Uh, and those sanctions don't have to be uh, counterattacks. But we also, if we're going to do that, we have to be pretty good ourselves about responding to complaints that there are cyber attacks coming from the United States. Uh, we don't do that very well right now. It takes a long time when you're Japan or Israel or, or even Russia and you complain there's an attack coming from the U.S. It takes us a long time to process that complaint uh, and to go after and shut down the attacker. Uh, we have to improve that, get our own house in order. Uh, and then, I think, create that alliance of like-minded nations, create the norms, and create the penalties for people who don't live up to those norms. All right. Well, thank you very much. Unfortunately, we're out of time. I have so many other things that I wanted to talk about. I went so quick. Thanks for coming on the show. Um, I want to have you back often. I hope you come back to visit us. So I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Great talking to you. Well, thank you. Thank you. So that's it. For today, uh, just a reminder, each episode is available for replay 24-7, 365 on the Voice America Business Channel. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Thank you for tuning in this week to Task Force 7 Radio. To learn more about Task Force 7 Radio, please visit our website at taskforce7radio.com. Be sure to join your host, George Reedus, again next Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel.